though that clock's a little slow, so we are going to start. But let's open with a word of prayer. And Rodney, would you pray, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, time together amongst uh, brothers and sisters here and ask that you uh, bless your word to our hearts and just uh, open our hearts to uh, hear the truth that, uh, that we know is there but sometimes struggle to see. I give Pastor Dave the wisdom to, uh, to speak in a way that speaks to each one here uh, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well. We are going to start 2 Timothy this morning, but just a little review from two weeks ago at the end of 1 Timothy 6. So you, we, we're going to grade on a curve that it's been two weeks to remember some of these things, but they're important to re review. And so one would be, why are Christians called to be peaceable, gentle, and courteous to all people? Do you remember Paul's reasoning? He gave that instruction, and then he said, for blank. So what was the reason he said that's to characterize our relationships with all people? Peaceable, gentle, courteous. Oh, actually, this was in Titus. Maybe that would help. That would help a lot. Because <laughs> I'm looking at First Timothy, and I'm like, I don't see it. <laughs> so how about Titus, chapter 3. How's that for a hint? Could you repeat the question now? So the question is, why are Christians called to be peaceable, gentle, and courteous to all people? It spells it right out for us by connecting with the word for. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Okay. So we could summarize that and say, uh, it's only the grace of God that we're any different than everybody else around us. Uh, we're no better off or smarter than anybody else or different than anybody else. That's what we were too. And so, you know, don't be nasty to people that uh, are still lost. What is regeneration? Big word for what? Okay, yeah, that's one of the images, right? So it's being born again, giving new life to the spiritual dead, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, um, new creation, all those languages of just a completely new start. We were dead in sin and trespasses. He made us alive in Christ. Okay, so that's the initial bringing us into God's family. Then uh, it goes on to talk about the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what's the renewing of the Holy Spirit? So regeneration happens once. It's a once and done or once and continuing kind of thing. What's renewing by the Holy Spirit? The ongoing process of becoming less and less like what we used to be and becoming more and more like Christ. So there's another word for that. It's another big multi-syllable word. What's that called? Sanctification means set apart. Becoming set apart from what we were in Adam 
set apart to become more and more what we are and are called to be in Christ. And then what does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous. It's a verdict from God. Righteous in God's sight, it's the opposite of being condemned. And then last but not least, why are believers called to engage in good deeds or good works? We saw two reasons last week, and then there's one I want to go back to in chapter 2 as well. It's good. Well, it's a good thing to do, right? <laughs> That'll work. <coughs> Any other reasons Paul gives us in Titus? says it's profitable for us. Okay, it's profitable or it makes us fruitful. Good. What else? Trustworthy. Trustworthy. Okay. So I'll give you another hint. Verse 14. So we want to be, we don't want to be unfaithful or unfruitful. And then what was it, the beginning of the verse, or earlier in the verse, what happens when we're engaged in good deeds? Help cases of urgent need. Needs get met. Okay. So remember in Acts, we saw the early church, Acts 4 through 2, there was not a needy one among them. So there was people had their antenna up for, is there a need? And, and can I, how can I help meet that? And the church, early church was doing such a good job of paying attention to each other's needs, there wasn't any needy one among them, which is a very high bar to set. But Paul's saying, being engaged in good, we need to learn to engage in good deeds. So it doesn't come automatically. We need to learn it, just like we need to learn to be content. We'll learn just about everything else in the Christian life. But one of the reasons we need to learn it is to meet pressing needs. There are always going to be needs. And... Good deeds is part of meeting those needs. It makes us fruitful. And then go back to 2.14. Read 14. Somebody read that and tell me why we're to be engaged in good deeds. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. I think it seems like it's a character of God's people. Okay, I think we could even say more than that. It, you're yeah. right, it is. But wouldn't it be, I mean, just look at the language. Christ Jesus gave himself for us. Why? One, to redeem us from every lawless deed. Two, and purify for himself a people for his own possession. What are they like? Zealous. For good deeds. So we used to be lawless deeds. He redeemed us from that. And now we're to be zealous, which was, Tom, what was the word you used for? Passionate. Passionate, eagerly enthusiastic about good deeds is one of the purposes Christ gave himself, to have a people like that. So it's big. It's not just we're Boy Scouts and we're supposed to do a good deed every day. It's one of the reasons for the atonement was to purchase a people for Christ that would be characterized by abundant good deeds. Does that make sense? 
Do you see it in the verse? It's, it's right in the verse. So I'm not making this up. Okay, so any comments or questions on anything we saw in Titus before we start 2 Timothy? Okay, well, let's go. If you're not sure what we're doing, we save 2 Timothy for last because it is Paul's last letter. He is awaiting his martyrdom. He talks about that in chapter 4. And so we did 1 Timothy, and then Titus was written in between 1 and 2 Timothy. So now we're chronologically back to where Paul would be. So let's go ahead and read the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Somebody read those, please. So do you remember three of the characteristics we said about Timothy when we were in 1 Timothy? So do you remember some things about him? How old is he? He's young. Okay, remember the verse, don't let anyone despise your youth. Um, how's his health? Apparently he's kind of sickly, right? He has many frequent ailments. So young, kind of frail, and what was the third piece? How uh, bold and courageous and like just Mr. Tough Guy is he? Not at all. Not at all. So his nickname is Tim and Timothy. At least some people call him that. So, so young, sickly, timid. And yet he's the pastor of this church in Ephesus uh, after Paul had been there a year and a half or two years and does this handoff and that's the guy in charge and we've already seen First Timothy, there's just a bunch of problems with false teachers and other stuff going on in this church. And now Paul's writing his last letter to Timothy, his kind of understudy, to this church. And um, so he has some instructions first for Timothy, and then there'll be more as we go. So those are some things we remember about Timothy. And what do we pick up here about his family, his family of origin? Hey, yeah, so there's a grandmother named Lois and a mother named Eunice, and they were both believers. We're told in Acts 16, Timothy's dad was not a believer. He was a Gentile. Um, and then when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to find out that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So his mom and or grandma were teaching him the Bible, leading him to faith in Christ. So just a, a note to Christian parents, that's part of our calling, is to show our kids the way of salvation in Christ. Um, yes, we want to share it with other people, but start at home. <laughs> that's our mission field. Okay, any comments or questions on those first five verses? Okay, let's read 6 and 7. 
For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hand, my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, thank you. So what does it mean to rekindle or fan into flame the gift of God? Okay, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, Build on it. Yeah. So I think your your ESV has fan into flame, New American Center has rekindled, but you you hear the imagery in the, the phrase, right? So what happens to a campfire uh, just left to itself? It goes out. It goes out, right? It just smolders and gets smoky and dies out. So rekindling a fire or fanning a flame into fire into flame is, you know, you take some newspapers or a frisbee or whatever and and get it burning again, right? So that's the word picture Paul is giving Timothy, don't let the fire of your spiritual gift die out like a campfire, fan it back into flame, have it burning. Okay? So why would that happen to Timothy, and why does that happen to us that we get to a point where we need to have it fan back into flame? What happens? We get burned out. Okay, I see what you did there with the play on words, burned out. <laughs> that can what happen. We lose our first love. Losing first love would be another biblical image, right? What else? The cares of the world take take us and we get concerned with things that aren't of God. Okay, I gotta start writing these down. So burnt out, first love, cares of the world. Because I'll ask this in the quiz next week, so. <laughs> I mean, don't you like it when the teacher tells you this will be on the test? <laughs> okay, what else? What did Patrick say? I said the cares of the world make us it's where we're not thinking about And just plain not actively putting new energy in. So what's the second law of thermodynamics? John, I know you had physics. Create or destroy energy. That's the third. No, that's third. Second, entropy, yeah. Gary, what's, what's entropy? Things run down. You lose energy over time. Unless? More is put in. Okay, so it doesn't even have to be something like I lost my first love, which is a morally sad thing, right? Or cares of the world, which is a morally distracting thing. It can just be plain neglect. Left to ourselves, we, our affections, our, our zeal, our everything just sort of peters out unless there's fresh energy injected in, and that's what Paul's calling Timothy and us to do. Rekindle, fan it in a flame, keep it going, don't settle for just, yeah, I used to be on fire for the Lord. Remember that phrase, being on fire for the Lord? I remember a cartoon in a Christian magazine. The secretary's telling the pastor, it's the Guinness Book of World's Records. They're asking if there's anybody here on fire for the Lord. Like, that's such a rare thing. Um, 
It's like that shouldn't be rare. It should be everybody. But left to ourselves, we do dwindle. And so we need to rekindle it, get it back in the flame. So I think we'd all agree with that. How does that happen? How do we do that? What's Timothy supposed to do with that? Gets this letter from Paul. OK, that's nice. Paul, what, am I, what do I do? Why would you tell him? Or do, what do we tell us? How do we rekindle the flame? <clears throat> I think that's a great place to go. And again, if you think of Psalm 119, there's about 10 times there's a connection between revive me and your word. So revive is reinvigorate with fresh life, new energy, new strength. So if I'm kind of fading, I need to be revived. And Psalm 119 tells us one of the means God uses to revive us is his word. So Ed is absolutely right. That would be a big way. What else might be a means of rekindling or fanning into flame? Fellowship with other believers. Okay, how does that? How does that do it? It builds you up in faith. Okay. Encourages you. Good. Uh, it gives you new thoughts and ideas that come from others who are in relationship to God. Okay, good. Good. Mm -hmm. What pray. else might help? Pray. Pray! <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here, because it seems like these are sort of the typical Sunday school answers, right? Read the Bible, pray, fellowship, um, because those are the means of grace, right? So pray. Um, maybe some of you remember the Keith Green song. Some of you might not. But, oh, Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright in me. You know? It used to be bright, kind of that first love, but over time it just sort of flickers and then wobbles and so it's pray lord don't let it die out keep it going light it relight it put some gasoline on it do something so i don't just get lukewarm and flat and sluggish in my christian life and my gifts any other thoughts is there any value in just doing it that was actually my last point, is be actively engaged in using it. So, you know, our grandkids had swimming lessons this last week. Well, how do you learn how to swim? You get in the pool and swim. It's right? true of a lot of things. So how do we keep our spiritual gifts going? Well, make sure we're using our gifts. If we're just on the bench watching other people use their gifts, our gift is going to die down, not be in a flame. Shelley. And of course, it says discipline discipline and also the fact that Paul is reminding him so we could be reminding each other exactly go good 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 it says timidity but that also can be used a little bit like fear when my kids were little I knew this verse as a song and it said, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Mm -hmm. well, and they learned to sing that, and they still sing it as adults, and their kids sing it. All right, I'm going to ask Carter to sing it for me when I see her. But no, it's, that's a good way to learn scripture, isn't it? Yeah. 
horns, put it to a tune, make up your own, or there's music, there's stuff on the internet, has all, by Awana verses on to a song, all kinds of verses uh, to songs. Um, so that does actually bring us to verse seven. What kind of spirit did God give us? We mentioned power, love, um, and again, depending on translation, sound mind, self-control, discipline, all overlapping. Um, so what could we conclude about a spirit of fear then? That's, what conclusion does Paul make about it? Well, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be saved, but it sure isn't from God, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Um, if you have the word timidity, which, again, is Timothy's nickname, timidity means shrink back from danger, faint-hearted, fearful of threats, easily intimidated, which would also apply to fear as well. So if we're feeling those kind of feelings, we can be very confident that isn't God prompting those feelings. Because God gave a spirit of love, power, and self-control. Love, yeah, I get them right. Power, love, self-control. So those, we can be sure, are from God. Fear and timidity aren't from God. Sometimes maybe Satan, sometimes we don't even need any help from Satan to be there. We can just be there by ourselves <laughs> without any outside interference. So any comments or questions on that? What does he mean by power? Like, like what, what does that look like? Okay. Anybody want to jump in on that? I think he was asking you. I'm asking you. Well, and this is a group, <laughs> group setting that we can learn from each other. I think Dave just said that, so. And I just need to buy some time <laughs> before I even get an answer. So, <laughs> like, you guys help me, you can get it. No, that's fine. That's fine, I'll chime in. I'm just curious. Tom, what were you going to say? The first part of seven. Spirit is what empowers us to righteous living and convicts us of sin and encourages us. Okay. So the Holy Spirit's power working in us, I would say. And again, that's kind of the opposite of fear and timidity. You know, the Holy Spirit is gives boldness and power and that uh, and and being weak helps us remember we need his power. Any other thoughts on Amber's question? So what is the power, what do we use the power for? Well, I'm, I'm wondering, at least in context, it's flowing right after kindling first the gift of God which was given you. So at least the power to use the gift that God gave you and not be timid about it, not be um, negligent of it, but that God's enabling would fuel that gift to be used. So you speak the word of God boldly, like they did when they were gathered together and the Spirit came. Yeah, Acts 4, right? Acts 4. came out of there speaking with boldness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you're sure about what you're speaking about. Sure. And it's the spirit that's enabling that boldness, right? So, yeah, so I, I think that would be my best link is just the power to do what God's called us to do, whether you're Timothy specifically or any believer uh, in whatever ministry or evangelism or whatever we're doing, 
God gives us the power to do that, not our own strength. Um, one of my favorite verses about that is 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is in God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So we can't do this. We can't go to vacation Bible school this week and try to share Christ with the kids or the grown-ups that are there or our neighbors or our relatives at family reunions this summer. We can't do anything on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to will and do his good pleasure, to empower us to do what we might not do in our own ability or strength. And that indicates strength, too, rather than weakness. Okay, good. Good, Trudy. Right. There's a tremendous power in love. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can watch any kind of a Hallmark show and always love prevails and there's a tremendous power. Right, and we've got better love than any Hallmark can ever give, right? <laughs> we've got the Bible. Right. So any other thoughts on 6 and 7? All right, let's read 8 through 11, please. So let me read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. That's all we need for now, but that was great. Thank you very much. So what is shame, or what does it mean to be ashamed? Embarrassed. Embarrassed is a good, easy synonym, right? Um, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's painful awareness of being in the wrong, consciousness of something improper, or embarrassment. So, so why would Timothy, or why might the rest of us be embarrassed about the testimony of our Lord. Another way to answer that is, why are we often reluctant to tell other people about Christ? Because of the opposition to it. Okay. What kind of opposition do we face? Any other thoughts of why we're hesitant or reluctant or embarrassed to tell others about Jesus? To others, it appears foolish. Okay. So it seems like it's a foolish thing, and you don't want to appear foolish, even though you know it's not. Anything else? Evangelism. 
evangelism, I think, specifically would be like self-preservation and that the fear of what could go wrong or what what the other person could think of me. So when I think of being ashamed, I think of, you know, that the idea of just being wrong or being perceived as wrong or damaging a relationship, and I feel like I'm the cause of it. So that all feels like it brings shame on me, which I think are all okay. things that we can feel when we think about specifically evangelism. Sure. Talk well, I mean, it says, afraid, ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So I think that's called evangelism. Yeah, right. Sharing, witnessing, whatever word you want to call it, it's... I have a testimony about the Lord, and I'm holding back for some reason. And I think we've hit on some of the main ones. It's just, um, at various levels, fear of what others think about us. And that, in a Muslim country, can be outright persecution. You can go to jail or get stoned to death or whatever. In America, that's not happening yet, as far as I can see, um, even in the near future. But just that fear of rejection, fear of people thinking you're weird or a religious freak, uh, you're out of touch, um, and, and maybe they give you the cold shoulder at work or the family gatherings or whatever. I mean, we've all been there, right? <laughs> people find out you're a Christian and like, oh, okay, you're one of those. And, and we are ashamed um, at, at some level. Uh, we're, we're not exactly like, you know, I'm wearing a big button, like, look at me, I'm a Christian, which I'm not advocating, but I'm saying we kind of go the other direction, like, yeah, I don't want to make too big a deal of this because I know you'll think I'm weird. So, so how do we overcome that? And again, what's the flow of thought? What, how does eight start? Therefore, okay. What does therefore mean? In light of what I just said, here's the application. So in light of the fact that God gave us a spirit of power, love, and discipline, and not a spirit of timidity and fear, don't be ashamed. So Paul's telling he's walking us through us train of thought. He's not just throwing out random gems to put on Twitter. He's he's building it a case. And, and so there's a connection between not being ashamed and the spirit God has given us and the spirit God hasn't given us. So if I'm fearful about representing Christ in whatever setting, that's not from God. <laughs> um, the power and the love to be able to do that is going to be from God. So any more thoughts on that before we move on? Why might Paul or uh, Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Because he says, don't be ashamed of me either. So why might Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Or why might we be ashamed of being associated with other Christians? I am ashamed to be associated with some Christians. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. What kind of Christians are you ashamed to be associated with? Don't name names, just... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Good save. I, I just think there are times that we really dig ourselves a, a big hole, and I think if we handle things a little bit differently, maybe we wouldn't be suffering so much for the gospel. I completely agree with you. Uh, there's an old story about um, this Christian complaining, oh... 
they persecuted our Lord too. And this brother said, well, they, um, or they crucified our Lord too. And he's like, well, he said, they crucified two others that day and they deserved it. <laughs> kind of like, you don't be a martyr here, buddy. It's not because of your identity with Christ. It's because you're being a jerk. You know? yeah. So yeah. there are various Christians who you, you are kind of like the cousin you don't want to own. You know? It's like they're out there. Um, please, you know, whatever. So I, so I just have a little anecdotal story. So I used to attend a church. Uh, it was a small country church. And a majority of the members had been there for 30 years or more. And this older farmer was leading Sunday school and he posed the question, what would you do if a gay couple came into our church and sat in the front row and was holding hands? And the woman said, that is just disgusting. And he said, and your sin is disgusting too. Hmm. And I was like, yes, that's it right there. Like, that, that is, um, I think that is what makes us unpalatable sometimes because we're so, Christians tend to be self-righteous and holier than thou. And I okay. speak that as one who maybe still struggles with those things too. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so we can be odious not about the right things. Um, not that we are approving or endorsing a gay couple, period, but hopefully we're not throwing rocks at them as they come in the door either. So there's a, there's a, a line we can try to navigate. But I think the perception of a lot of people in the world is we're judgmental, hating, um, nasty people. And that's, sadly, there's people, real Christians or at least professional Christians who can be that way. And so um, we want to at least change that stereotype, not endorse sin, but at least be gracious people and um, not obnoxious people. So um, specifically with Timothy and, and Paul, um, Paul's a prisoner and he's suffering. So the closest I've gotten to this feeling is there was a young man from our church who got uh, sentenced for doing drugs, and so he was in the Plymouth County Jail. And I went up to visit him roughly once a month. And it was just always this weird feeling, like I'm coming, I'm here to visit so-and-so, you know, and the guards check you out, you know, and then they let you in this big metal door, you know, and you, and, and you're, you're just like, so like, do they think I'm a drug guy too? <laughs> no. Do they, I, you know, what are they thinking about me? Because I'm associated with this guy who's in prison. It's just a weird feeling. If you've never done it, try it. Um, <laughs> not that you need to go find a, a drug dealer, but you know, just <laughs> you know, a day might come when we do start getting thrown in jail, and then it'll be real awkward to go visit a fellow Christian, won't it? Look at Hebrews 10. You went and visited those in prison, remember that part? So they were risking them, their own safety and well-being by visiting believers that were already in jail. They weren't visiting criminals and drug dealers. They were visiting Christians who were locked up. And there was a risk there. So 
Timothy's like counting the cost, like, okay, if I identify with Paul, this guy who's a jailbird and who's suffering, is that going to fall on me in some way? Does that reflect on me that I'm associated with him? So, and especially if you're already timid and you're young and you're sick a lot, you're maybe not just feeling like, yeah, I really want to go visit Paul while he's in jail. <laughs> right? You might be thinking, ah, we'll let Anisophorus do that. We'll meet him later. All right. <coughs> Let's uh, get to the, the good stuff in this paragraph. What are some things Paul tells us about how God saved us? Okay, so not according to our works, but what? Okay, good. And, and when was that purpose and grace granted to us or given freely to us? Eternity past. Do you see it? Okay, so can you think of some other verses that Say salvation didn't start that day you trusted Christ, or even on the cross 2,000 years ago, that your salvation started before creation. Can you think of some verses that talk that way? Ephesians 1. Okay, what does that say? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, that'll work. How about some other verses? Two other big ones. Psalm 139 says that uh, he knew every word before one had even been spoken. That's Psalm 139, 13. Yep. And enough, we're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. Right. Um, Matthew 25, 34. Would somebody read that, please? Matthew 25, verse 34. So God didn't just start preparing this kingdom after Jesus came. It was before the foundation of the world. And then there's one more in Revelation 13, 8, in the same language as this in chapter 17 as well. But would somebody read 13, 8 of Revelation? All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those all of whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Okay, so you, do you have King James? Or New King James? Mine? Yeah. No, NIV. Well, that's NIV, okay. So NAS and ESV have, the, the names are written in the book of life before the founding. And I mean, they're both true, right? I mean, Christ's death was not an afterthought. That was part of an eternal plan of salvation. Um, but I think the better sense of that verse is our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Just like Ephesians 1, we're chosen before the foundation of the world. 
our, this kingdom was given us before the foundation of the world. So it seems more likely that our names were written then and not they get added when we trust Christ. They were already there before we were born. All right? So we're called with a holy calling. It's not because of what we do, but because of his grace. And then that grace is manifested in the coming of Christ. What does it mean that Christ abolished death? Seems like death is still around. I've been to a few funerals already this year. What does it mean that Christ abolished death? So the basic meaning of the word is decisively defeat or render harmless. So two illustrations to get a picture of it would be, um, have you ever had a nail in your tire? I have. <laughs> so the nail goes in and like that's the first blow, right? It doesn't go flat instantly, but it's only a matter of time and that thing will be completely flat and you can't drive on it. You have to replace it, right? So when is the tire flat? Well, you could say that second the nail pierces it. And it just takes a little while for the full effect of that to take place. So Christ's death and resurrection was the nail in the coffin of death. That it's only a matter of time. And that's God's perspective on time, not ours. Till the final outcome will happen. But it is absolutely certain it will happen because Christ conquered it. The other one, which you've heard before, too, is um, that the one time there was a bee in Awana, and the kids were just freaking out. <laughs> and I'm allergic to bees, so I was a little nervous, too. But there was a point where the bee was on the ground, and I just stepped on it and killed it. And so now it's like, OK, I don't have to worry about the bee anymore. But if I was really taking one for the team, I would have caught the bee, let it sting me, die, <laughs> and come back to life. But you know that once a bee has stung you, it can't sting you again. Okay? So the bee, the, remember the language in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. So Jesus took the sting of death in himself. Death no longer has the ability to harm us because sin has been dealt with completely by his death on the cross and his resurrection. So that bee is still around, still flying around, but that stinger can't hurt us anymore. So we're still going to die physically, but we won't die and go to hell anymore if we've trusted Christ because he's removed the sting of death. So those are two attempts at what it means that Christ abolished death, even though death is still very much around us. And will probably take us all be unless the Lord comes back while you're still alive. So we're still going to experience it, probably, but it, the sting won't be there, and He'll be with us. So, any questions or comments on that phrase? So is it accurate to say that He abolished the second death? Yes, it would be very accurate to say that. That's the language of Revel in Revelation, right? Okay, any other comments or questions on that paragraph in 2 Timothy? Okay, well, I think we'll stop there and come back, Lord willing, next week for chapter 1, verse 12, and following, and then into 2. So why don't we close in prayer?
And John, would you lead us, please?